0: this podcast is brought to you by the transitional justice institute at ulster university learn more about our work including our taught postgraduate programs in gender conflict transitional justice and human rights at www.transitionaljustice.ulster.ac.uk
1: dr katrina dowd uh, and the peace and conflict experts network for the invitation and for this initiative to join uh, to hold his first round table on Ireland uh, and our membership of the UN Security Council. And obviously for us, it's really important, I think, to maintain a really um, interactive dialogue, both with international and with Irish civil society, with academic partners, um, with think tanks, uh, with, with parliamentarians, um, and to learn from the expertise of the very wide range of partners that we have. Um, and I know that this network in particular obviously has a specific expertise that will be particularly useful to us on the council. Um, today's panel uh, includes a number of colleagues that we're working with closely already, I think, on um, the Security Council, including Dr. Dowd and also Professor Panula Mielloin. Both of those are members of our Stakeholders Forum. We have a Stakeholders stakeholders form with civil society, with academic and with think tank partners uh, who we'll be consulting with and we're engaging with across the two years of the Council. We started about four or five months before we joined the Council um, with that group and it's very much an interactive group um, and an iterative process to try and tease out some of the issues that we know that will face us on the Council um, but that are complex both politically uh, and also intellectually in a way. Uh, to try and work through what it is that we can best achieve um, during our time on the council. And again, we're really keen, I think, to um, hear from the most diverse range of voices that we can and um, draw from the ideas and from the work and the expertise across Ireland uh, and more broadly, obviously, in terms of the very wide range of issues on the council. Most of you will know that the council is seized of um, more than 40, sorry, 50 agenda items. There's 30, more than 30 country or regional situations that the council is seized of. And just over 20 thematic issues um as well as issues that come up from time to t- time to time which are not formally on the agenda of the council but come up either in area formula meetings which are informal meetings of the council or as um any other business points so it's a huge uh, heavy agenda complex politically obviously but also the breadth uh, and the depth of it uh, is always a challenge i think for any member state but particularly for a smaller member state as an elected member We've just started our second month. So the good news is that we survived the first month. Um, So that's a a good start. One month down, 23 to go. Um, And obviously we have, uh, I think, a feeling of great honor and and great responsibility as well. We gained the votes of 128 UN member states. Um, All of those member states, I think, voted for us for a variety of reasons, but certainly I think voted for us based on a very clear and principled history of foreign policy on human rights issues, on development issues, on peacekeeping, Um, one of the things that we talked about in terms of the final weeks of the campaign is with Ireland what you see is what you get Um, we've been consistent in terms of our foreign policy thinking and in terms of our foreign policy principles for a long time and we will be that country also on the council Um, so I think we do feel that weight of expectation obviously also very much I think the weight of expectation and responsibility to our domestic um, stakeholders I hate that word but um, uh, domestic partners both civil society Um, Parliamentary, uh, across government, um, and just the broader public at large, because we had tremendous support from across the political spectrum in Ireland um, and very much so I think from the broadest sense uh, of civil society in Ireland throughout the campaign, and I think much of what we drew from and we spoke about uh, was not just the government's work and, um, and the various different aspects of the human rights work of the development work, and of the peacekeeping work that government or government institutions do but also the wider work of Ireland the Irish public and um, civil society academics and others that has contributed enormously I think to the wider peace and conflict agenda internationally we're obviously joining the council around the council now at a time of um, significant international instability and also I think there's no point in being naive about the dynamics that we're facing on the council they're extremely challenging um, I think we're fortunate to have joined at a time of transition in the US And even in just the last week or two, I think we've seen that the Biden administration will take a very different approach on some of the key issues on the Security Council agenda. So I think we see the possibility of progress on some issues which have been very much stuck in the Council for for the last at least four years, and many of them for much longer than that. Um, But at the same time, I think that we are not in any way naive and we have no illusions about how difficult some of the core issues will remain. Um, Monica already mentioned that our tenure on the council will be guided by three principles building peace, strengthening conflict prevention and ensuring accountability and underneath those framework principles, obviously there's a lot of detail which I won't go into in in too much detail at this stage but happy to to answer questions about it. I mean I think in terms of the building peace part, one of the things that we really want to focus on um, is the contribution that we can make to shaping peacekeeping mandates, most of the audience here will know that Ireland has. Been participating in UN peacekeeping since 1958. There hasn't been a day since 1958 that there hasn't been an Irish peacekeeper in one or other uh, of the UN missions. Um, This is an opportunity to actually shape the mandates that our peacekeepers serve under. And one of the things that we're focused on at the moment is putting in place structures so that when we are going to the Security Council and discussing those mandates, that we have drawn from the expertise of our defence forces. So we have a structure now where we have our own department, the Department of Defence, Uh, and the defence forces discussing well in advance what we think will be in mandates, what the current issues are, and particularly in in missions that we're serving in, getting the experience of our own defence forces personnel in terms of is this mandate fit for purpose, does it do what it needs to do, are there holes or are there issues that need to be addressed more, particularly with the focus on things like protection of civilians, um, women, peace and security, youth, peace and security, are there areas that this, this peacekeeping mission could be doing more on and is there a way to shape or at least try to shape the mandate to drive that so that's something that we're really focused on and i think is something that we can bring to the council that maybe other elected members can't because they simply don't have the depth and the breadth of experience in peacekeeping um, that ireland does um, we're also again through our interest and our engagement on the peacekeeping side i think also able to hopefully shape some of the more um Uh, policy conversations around the long term uh, impact of peacekeeping and the long term future of peacekeeping, particularly in respect of the UN's relationship with regional organizations and particularly the African Union. So there's a huge and complex conversation internationally around African led peacekeeping, what that looks like, how can the UN best support that both financially and in terms of mandates, a lot of difficult issues around um, focuses, for instance, on counterterrorism over um, protection of civilians type mandates. Uh, Financing very, very complex. Um, There's no set view, I think, within African partners and and certainly no set view within um, non-African partners on the Council as to exactly how the UN should or can support better in terms of resourcing and financing. But again, we feel that that's an area that we can really contribute to because obviously we have very, very long experience of UN peacekeeping. We have the experience also of... um, engaging in EU crisis management missions and seeing how they do and don't link into EU peacekeeping or UN peacekeeping and UN peacekeeping um, mandates. And also we have a strong partnership with the African Union through our embassy in Addis, I was accredited there for two years and we did a lot of work trying to build up our partnership on the peace and security agenda in particular um, with the African Union. And again, even things like, for instance, the change, there's changing changes at the moment in the EU in terms of how the EU finances um, peacekeeping and peace and security, African peace and security architecture. So I think we're well placed to try and pull of all, all of those threads together uh, and make sure that we're making as solid and as effective a contribution as we can to the wider policy debates. Um, I think also one of the issues that has come up often in the conversations that we've been having with stakeholders, particularly in Ireland, is around the sexual exploitation and abuse issue and that's something again that we want to really see as a council member and particularly looking at mandates, how we can um, join with many others, uh, there are many many member states I think who are working on this and really focused on this and I know that Professor Wills in particular will, will address the issue of peacekeeping and accountability in her contribution. Um, in, terms of the, in terms of the issues around um, ensuring accountability, I think for us a fundamental reason that we're on the council is because ireland is a country that believes absolutely fundamentally in the rule of law and particularly international humanitarian and human rights law we also see that human rights violations while also in and i mean in and of themselves obviously are unacceptable but they also drive conflict um, in significant numbers of the conflicts that the council is um, seized of human rights violations uh, and severe human rights violations severe violations of international humanitarian law are one of the roots of those conflicts, or one of the drivers of those conflicts. So by promoting accountability and by promoting adherence to international law, we see a clear link there with conflict prevention as well as with accountability uh, and with protection of civilians. That is much easier said than done on the Council, it's really difficult um, to make progress on this issue in the Council, and in fact when we were thinking about the sorts of issues that we wanted to focus on, in a way we paused a little bit about putting ensuring accountability up in lights, because it's something that Um, If you're asked two years later, what have you achieved in concrete terms, no country I think is going to be able to easily answer that question, but at the same time, I think trying to hide that or trying to to minimize that um, doesn't work either. I think it's incredibly important for for member states and for members of the council in particular to consistently push these issues, even where it's not possible to make progress on the council, specifically on the issues. we for instance also uh, in terms of the peace building part and in terms of um uh well both peace building and, and conflict prevention we also are very much focused i think on women and human, women and peace and security and the youth peace and security agenda monica will know better than anybody and many of you here will know um, i know there's a, coll- a, c- a colleague here on the panel from ABC colombia that if you don't have an inclusive peace you don't have a lasting and sustainable peace and i think we have a very strong lived experience of that that again we want to try and bring into Uh, issues on the Council and bring into discussions on the Council. Um, The Women, Peace and Security Agenda, as many of you know, has come a long way from a normative perspective, lots of resolutions. um, Hasn't come a long way from uh, an implementation perspective, particularly, although there has been good progress in some areas. Um, And the Youth, Peace and Security Agenda is quite new on the Council. And again, quite a contested space also. So both of those issues are issues that we want to highlight throughout our term. Um, In terms of uh, accountability, I think also it's important to state that we're a very firm supporter of the International Criminal Court. Uh, We believe that the Court has a unique and a vital mission to ensure that those responsible for the most serious crimes of international concern cannot act with impunity. And again, we're very cognizant um, under no illusions that the Security Council's um, role in this in terms of potentially bringing to the attention of the International Criminal Court issues of concern is one that it has not exercised for some time um due to the dynamics on the council and due to a number of uh, permanent members in particular um, blocking any progress on that but again it's something i think that we want to be very very clear about and stand very firm on even if we can't necessarily make proactive progress on the council um obviously as, as i've said um, professor mcwilliams monica uh, can confirm very much that the inclusivity part um is extremely important And we are now going to chair or co-chair rather with Mexico, the informal expert group on women, peace and security. And in fact, we're gonna have the first meeting of that um, later this week, focusing on South Sudan. And one of the things that we want to do as part of that um, co-chairing role, again, is not so much work on the normative framework, although that's also something that we do want to look at because we have a very significant normative framework under the UN and under other bodies, but to look at implementation and particularly to hold to account Uh, senior UN officials, particularly the special representatives of the Secretary General, um, the head of peacekeeping missions, the head of uh, special political missions, to make sure that they're actually doing what they're supposed to be doing in terms of their mandate under Women, Peace and Security. Most of the peacekeeping mandates, and I think all or almost all of the special political mission mandates that the UN Security Council um, mandates, uh, do have Women, Peace and Security as part of them. Some of them have very strong provisions around that but it's only as good as its implementation. So we want to make sure that we are bringing um, the senior UN figures who are charged with implementing these um, to uh, the Security Council, to the informal experts group underneath the Security Council to make sure that they're actually implementing it. And one of the things that we also want to do and we've started to do already is to talk to civil society from the countries concerned in advance to get their perspective on what's working, what's not working, what needs to be improved. Um, And we've had a really good session with uh, South Sudanese Civil society South Sudanese women last week in, in preparation for our first um, working group meeting uh, this week on South Sudan. Um, the other thing in terms of um, drivers of conflict I think that we see, I've talked about the human rights violations, but obviously the climate and security agenda is a really really key one. Um, there's, This is a very contested space on the Council, the extent to which climate has a space in the Security Council and the extent to which climate is or isn't um, a multiplier or a driver of conflicts. I think we're firmly of the view that it is certainly a multiplier of conflicts in many um, areas. Uh, it's a driver of conflict in certain areas. Um, there's research, increasing research evidence on this. And again, we're investing and in talking to a number of um, think tanks and academic partners actually across, across the world on this and seeing if we can begin to build more evidence and a better evidence base to bring into the council to persuade those um, countries who do not think that ca- climate issues have a space on the Security Council um, to persuade them that there is strong evidence and increasing evidence of this. So, we're also going to co chair this year with Niger uh, a new expert group uh, underneath the Council, which is the informal expert group um, on climate and security. And again, we're having the first meeting of that this month. We'll be looking at the Sahel. And again, we see the mechanism of trying to make progress on this is not necessarily a huge big normative omnibus uh, resolution, although, of course, we'd love to achieve that if we could. But to look at specific contexts and to look at specific places in which there is clear evidence that conflict is driving or or that conflict is driven by climate. uh, And that the Security Council needs therefore to take its responsibilities in respect of conflict, uh, in respect of climate as a driver of conflict um, seriously. We also are going to uh, serve as the informal focal point on hunger and conflict. Um, for instance, I mean, one of the things that we, I think was most stark in terms of our first month on the council was the meeting on Yemen on the 14th of January, uh, when we heard briefing from a variety of interlocutors, including Ocha, Mark Lokuk of Ocha, um, that 5 million people in Yemen are now at imminent risk of famine. And again, there's probably no better um, place to, to demonstrate uh, the link between uh, conflict and hunger than Yemen, um, and I know that um, I know that uh, Radia, you addressed address the alarming situation in Yemen in your remarks, and I know you have a lot more detail than I'll be able to give. But again, these these issues where these issues around conflict and hunger, and that link between conflict and hunger, is one that is incredibly important. I think to make and incredibly important to work on. We do have a Security Council resolution that makes that link um, from about three to four years ago. And that was a huge breakthrough on the Council, I think, to get that um, understanding across and to ensure that all of the uh, members of the Council accepted that link uh, and understood that link. But again, there's a huge way to go in terms of implementation and understanding what that actually means in terms of practice, both for UN agencies uh, and for donor countries and for other partner countries. Another area that we're focused on in terms of our own specific responsibilities is Syria. So we will be acting as a co-pen holder, what's called a co-pen holder along with Norway on the Syria cross-border humanitarian file. So any of you who are familiar with the situation in Syria will be aware that in terms of providing humanitarian aid to areas that are um, opposition held or not controlled by the government in Syria, there's now only one um, crossing that the UN can use coming in from Turkey to provide aid into um, Northwest Syria specifically around the Idlib area. So I was actually with the minister with minister Kovni, our foreign minister uh, in Turkey last week. We were in Ankara um, for discussions with the foreign minister and then we went down to Hatay to visit um, Bab Hawa, which is the crossing where the um, aid flows into Syria currently um, go from. We met um, both Turkish officials uh, and also um, UN agencies, OCHA, uh, NGOs, a lot of Syrian NGOs who work on the Syrian side of the border, um, just to try and understand the dynamics around that, the political dynamics around that, So we will be charged basically with renegotiating the mandate to maintain that crossing open in July. We already know, and this is not a secret, it's been said publicly, we already know that um, a number of Council members, specifically Russia, um, are not keen to to see that um, remain open and they have fundamental objections to um, cross-border aid. Uh, They believe it should be done through Damascus and can be done through Damascus. So again, we're not under any illusion as to how difficult that role will be. But we put up our hands for that role early, um, I think, knowing how difficult it would be, but also seeing that for us, um, issues like humanitarian access issues like international humanitarian law are so important to us that we need to try and do our, our best to um, take on some of the files that we know will be politically difficult. Um, the other thing I would just like to maybe touch on quickly is um, non proliferation and disarmament. Again. Ireland has a very long history of non-proliferation and disarmament as one of our core foreign policy objectives. Uh, We we were one of the founders uh, of the NPT um, and we have a long history of engagement around those issues. Um, One of the things that is again, most complex politically I think on the council is the whole issue of Iran and the JCPOA and the nuclear deal which underpins the the nuclear deal, um, which was signed with Iran in 2015 and the security council resolution 2231 which underpins that deal. Um, and again, we we put up our hand early to uh, play the role as facilitator of 2231 on the council. Um, and that gives us an opportunity, I think, unique opportunity to uphold um, the nuclear uh, agreement, the JCPOA, to ensure that we are reporting to the council on the implementation of the agreement, and hopefully to play some maybe small role um, in trying to ensure that both um, Iran comes back into compliance in terms of its commitments under the JCPOA and also hopefully that the US decides uh, or is able to decide to return to the JCPOA. Um, as you know Trump, the Trump administration um, pulled out unilaterally of the JCPOA in 2018, the Iranian government began to um, uh, breach the terms of the agreement from mid-2019 and we're now at a situation where um, there is a very stark choice I think um, in front of the international community and particularly obviously in respect of the parties to the JcpoA in terms of coming back into compliance and minimizing the threat of proliferation um, in Iran and the Gulf and the wider Middle East region, which again I think is extremely serious um, at the moment. Um, maybe just one or, one or two other things to, to mention that we will also have a specific role in respect of. We are working again with Niger, not just on the conflict um, sorry not just on the climate and security issue, but also on conflict prevention and peace building in the Sahel and in West Africa. As co pen holders of the UN Office for West Africa and the Sahel, which is a specific um, special political mission of the United Nations UNOWAS uh, is, is the acronym for it um, and we 're just about to agree actually the first presidential statement of the Council in respect of UNOWAS, um, looking at its mandate, looking at the implementation of its mandate, and ensuring again that its um, role is uh, fit that, that its role is fit for purpose um, and that it is focused on the sort of peace building and conflict prevention activities. Um, that are that are mandated uh, under it's under the resolution that that underpins it. I um, I know, um, we have Gustavo De Carvalho from from ISS Africa on the panel and in fact we have a good partnership with ISS um, Africa experts based in Dakar and in Bamako and um, specifically around our work uh, on the UNOWAS file so thank you to the ISS for that we've worked with you as, as well on all sorts of issues around uh, peace and security in Africa, but I think in particular um, there's a particular focus with the with the Bamako and the Dakar offices now that we have this particular role around West Africa. Finally, in terms of our specific rules, we will be the chair of the Somalia Sanctions Committee, or we are the chair of the Somalia Sanctions Committee. We chaired the first meeting of that committee last week. Um, and so we have the responsibility there for overseeing the implementation of the sanctions regime that very much is is focused on um, al-Shabaab and very much focused on issues like financing. Um, of terrorism um, and a variety of issues that that um, focus on effectively the stability of, of Somalia, both from a security and from a political um, point of view. We also are very focused not just on the Somalia sanctions regime but across the board on all of the sanctions regimes that the UN has implemented to make sure that sanctions don't impede the delivery of humanitarian aid and don't um, inadvertently. Um, um, ensure that inadvertently um, impede humanitarian access. I think we're very conscious from being an EU member state of the dangers around that because obviously we're already involved in the conversations at EU level on EU sanctions regimes. Again, we now have the opportunity to um, be involved in the conversations on UN sanctions regimes and to really try and understand what the consequences are of sanctions to ensure that sanctions are targeted appropriately um, at individuals and at entities that are specifically Um, uh, in in violation of UN Security Council resolutions or who are spoilers to peace processes or who are financing terrorism, um, but also to make sure that those sanctions regimes are designed in such a way that they don't impede, obviously humanitarian, but also um, development um, funding and and activities. So finally, um, that's a sort of a whiz through (laughs) the council and probably a bit longer than I should have been. Um, Sorry, Katrina. Um, But I think just finally to say, we all need a functioning and an effective security council. And that's why we went for election. We feel that Ireland, although we're a small country, we are a country that desperately needs the UN, I would say desperately needs a multilateral system um, for our survival and obviously to thrive. Um, We're a country I think that has a very long history in terms of our foreign policy of taking a principled, but also a pragmatic approach to try and um, build consensus around issues that are difficult and issues that are, are, are divisive. We know it's not easy, Um, we will work constructively, we'll work patiently um, with all members both permanent and elected and again we know that that will be difficult but we feel that we can make a contribution to ensuring that the council fulfills its responsibilities um, and that we have a duty I think to make that contribution. That's uh, all I'll say for now but happy to take questions afterwards, thank you.
0: Thanks very much um, Ambassador. That was a real tour de force. I'm uh, so much more familiar with every single part of your work and and congratulations on being on the Security Council and can I wish Ireland well and wish you well, in particular in your post as political director. Thanks very much. Um, Ambassador, we're going to move, or Sonia, we're going to move on um, to give the speakers an opportunity. I'm not sure if you're going to be able to stay around that long um, but thank you so much. Um, I will now move on. And um, in terms of making up time, I'm going to uh, introduce each of the speakers one by one and read their bios when they come, because I'm going to try and see if we can um, get through until four o'clock um, without losing any, any time. Um, so I will introduce them. And then I will tell you a little now about the format we're going to run until four as I said and we'll begin by hearing from each of the panel speakers and then we'll turn to Q&A and then the audience now can start submitting questions as the speakers go through it to the Q&A function on your screen. Uh, Please include your name and your affiliation with your question Um, and please also note now that the event is being recorded. So let me turn first to my colleague and my long-standing friend for many years, um, Professor Fanula Nihiloy, who I know as Finn. Fanula is is the University Regents Professor. She's the holder of the Rubina Chair in Law, Public Policy, Um, is also um, Professor Associated with Queens, Belfast, Um, and is the Director of the Human Rights Center at the University of Minnesota Law School. She's concurrently Uh, as I said, a queen, but concurrently also, busy woman, United Nations Special Rapporteur on the promotion and protection of human rights and fundamental freedoms while countering terrorism. Um, She was re-elected, which is great to hear, Finn, for a further three years in 2020. Um, So over to you um, for your remarks. Thanks, Monica. Um, Monica
2: and I have spent so many years together. I'm missing her friendship and missing seeing her. And hopefully we all get to see one another in person. And so I'm delighted uh, to be here today and delighted to contribute to this conversation. And uh, thanks to uh, Christian Aid Ireland and to all of those who made the event happen. So let me just uh, briefly uh, commend Ireland again um, uh, on its election and really on the ambitious platform on which it was elected. And I think it's important to note that although the divisions um, that Ambassador Highland has set out, um, uh, divisions among council members and member states more broadly are real and there and there, uh, in some ways some of them have deepened with the onset of remote procedures during COVID. But there are also openings and pathways that can be taken. And I think Ireland is well placed to utilize an approach that builds on these new relationships and alliances on key issues. I think that uh, capacity to do that is really built on Ireland's way of doing business. And I think Ambassador Highland is absolutely right in the sense that Ireland's reputation as a bridge builder among member states will serve its its, uh, time on the council and in particularly when it holds the presidency well. And from my own part, I will just say from the mandate I hold, uh, from our perspective, this is a particularly big year, it's a big year for counter-terrorism, and it's a huge year for counter-terrorism on the Council, as there will be significant movement in the General Assembly, uh, particularly because we're leading up to the seventh review of the Global Counter-terrorism Strategy, which is well underway, uh, that should be finalized in June. And we're also going to be facing the 20th anniversary of 9 uh, and Ireland will hold the presidency of the Council in September. Uh, With that comes a series of other big security uh, resolution anniversaries, including UN Security Council Resolution 1373. Um, And I suppose my goal in the time I have this morning is to highlight, I think, some of the complexity, the personalities, and the positionalities. And I see some of the key trends that could inform the strategies and modalities that Ireland can pursue to to achieve its aim, Um, as it takes its seat alongside India, uh, Kenya, Mexico, and Norway. And I think those relationships, particularly some key relationships with Mexico and Norway will be critical for the two years ahead. Uh, reading between the lines in a way, it'll be critical to move um, on, the att- on the tensions, the real tensions that exist on human rights uh, in ways um, that are both obvious and non-obvious in the two years ahead. So if we look at the trends of 2020, we can see quite clearly today that the climate presents some really challenges, but also some opportunities. Um, And I think what I want to underscore is a couple of things. One is that it's important not to underestimate what can be achieved even in the context of limited or modulated working arrangements, which we're all working around. In some areas, notwithstanding COVID, the pace and the quantity of member state work has continued at a pace, if not increased, and I would put counterterrorism as one of those areas. We're also continuing to see some shifts in the position of member states on foundational issues that include human rights, gender, um, and one of the biggest challenges we face across both of those areas is that we have blocks of member states who have successfully degraded human rights language across country and thematic work both at the security council and in the general assembly and and much of the i suppose the, the work that's been most challenging has been done in the security council so a couple of trends i think that are important one is that meetings are broadly keeping pace Um, But I think as Ambassador Highland would attest, a lot of these meetings are much shorter and the briefers uh, that have been permitted to brief um, um, are are fewer. Uh, And that means that the space and scope of dialogue is, is, is restricted at the moment. So we're simply hearing from fewer member states on critical issues, and that makes the role of a bridge builder like Ireland all the more important. Um, At the same time, I think we're also seeing a heavy uptick in ARIA formula meetings um, and they're at their peak. Um, I think in 1992 um, uh, we had uh, over 22 and we had the same number last year in 2020. So member states that have previously pushed back on ARIA formulas um, um, have I think been less doing so. We're seeing a little bit more space for dialogue there. And I think as last week, there was a, a formula meeting last week on children in armed conflict, only one member state raised an objection. So that's a really important space, both to open up dialogue, but also to open up the space. And I think uh, that's something Ireland has committed to doing. And we certainly have seen that uh, so far. And, and I think it will be a space that will be important. And it's also, of course, the the divisions that we've talked about on a number of issues. I think we see it most in the number of presidential statements that are coming out of the council. And that dropped last year to 13. And so this is partly the case because statements require unanimity and the efforts to get them have failed because you either can't get unanimity or member states are making the choices strategically not to pursue them. So what do we see in that context? We see 12 resolutions that were not unanimous last year. If we think about sanctions for Central African Republic, Libya, Somalia, South Sudan, and Yemen, um, we saw lack of unanimity on mission mandate renewals for DRC, Western Sahara, Haiti, and Libya. Uh, also for criminal tribunals in the uh, Syrian humanitarian situations. It's also true that a lot of these divisions are also falling on issues around human rights and gender. And and as Ambassador Highland uh, mentioned, this question of the intense ongoing, ever intensifying uh, crisis situation in Syria on humanitarian aid and the reauthorization vote on the cross-border mechanism will really be a a hub of that. Um, we are seeing, as the ambassador said too, heavy pushback on climate and security. Um, uh, And we also saw one veto on women, peace and security. So that's, um, I think, a challenge. Um, But progress, as I said, has been made. We're seeing progress, I think on Libya, Mali, Colombia and Sudan on country specific items as well as children in armed conflict. And I think in the area of foreign fighters, which is a particularly complex area, the ARIA formula meeting hosted by Russia last week, gives a sense that some work can be done on children uh, uh, in the context of armed conflict and in particular in the Syria, uh, uh, Iraq context. So what's possible? Well, I think we all know and Ireland does too that council members have ambitious agendas and um, and sometimes how we measure achievement, not just, I think, as the ambassador said in these big omnibus resolutions, but rather in the work along the way, I think is an important way for us to, to conceptualize what we think is possible here. I don't think that's a cynical view, but it's a view that takes seriously the gains that can be made, looking not only at substantive normative outcomes, but at institutional uh, progression at organizational issues, and for Ireland to plant seeds of what can be actually realized by other states in other years, and that link between member states who come on and off, like the links uh, between off-ramp countries like Belgium, I think, are really important. And um, I think there's also this sort of the bespoke efforts that we're seeing in the ARIA formula meetings and the role of these informal expert groups, I think, are going to be critical in terms of pushing forward uh, long term agenda changes and realignments on the council. So the Cure, security climate group is a really good example of that, of bringing together diverse states uh, Germany, Niger, St. Vincent and the Grenadines on an issue that actually could move uh, in, in non obvious ways over time where you make small games, but they in fact improve dialogue. Um, I think we've also seen some positive dynamics play out in the security space with the first uh, first month of the of the Council, um, with Tunisia issuing its presidential statement, and just want to acknowledge um, the positivity and power of Ireland's own statement in that regard, uh, the crafting of Ireland's core issues in a really complex space, but also really acknowledging that um, Tunisia is uh, also in a, non, a non-obvious but important regional way opening up some spaces there. And um, I think it's also important to say that the aria formulas is one that I think can be used particularly to move through Ireland's commitments on human rights uh, with non-traditional allies. Um, and in ways that allow for sophisticated maneuvering around some of these complicated issues, and so um, I think for civil society, the, the 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 comment I would make is that the outcomes I think we have to be really sophisticated in how we judge the work that's done and not just look at the top lines that come out of either presidential statements or big omnibus resolutions. I actually don't think that's where most of the powerful work is done. And for, new, for states like Ireland, often the work they do in those spaces is stopping bad things from happening, actually, rather than being able to move um, uh, massively big shifts in one move. And so I I hope we can have a conversation that talks a little bit about that kind of strategic thinking. And also that um, as we in in civil society um, and other experts support Ireland, uh, they support those kinds of moves and and think inevitably and creatively about how those kinds of spaces could be best exploited over the next two years. Thank you.
0: Pamela, thank you so much. Um, And that was also a, a tour de force. Um, And can I wish you well in, uh, as you've just put it out yourself, the complexities of joining up all those particular spots in the line. Um, And thank you for talking about the need for accountability um, and and the prevention issue. Uh, I love your line, stop bad things from happening. Um, Never in the world was it so much needed. Um, So thank you so much for that. Um, And we'll return um, to some questions. Um, I'm going to go straight on now um, to introduce Louise. Um, Louise Winstanley is, um, sorry, I think I might have jumped. Um, it should be Raja, I beg your pardon. Um, I hope I'm getting this right. Yeah, Raja's next. Um, so, Raja Al-Mutakwa, a Yemeni human rights defender Um, Raja is the chairperson and co-founder of Matwana Organization for Human Rights. She's been working on the human rights field since 2004 and has been invited to present her work at numerous international events and forums, including briefing the UN Security Council in May 2017, at a hearing of the European Parliament and in testimony in front of the US Congress. Raja was on the Times list of the 100 most influential people in 2019, and congratulations, Raja, to you on that. So, Raja, what do you see as the priorities for the Security Council members if they want to build peace, prevent conflict, and strengthen accountability? Over to you.
3: So, the priority, from my view, is accountability. So, I'm actually happy to be with you today, and I'm... I actually feel very positive of having Ireland in the uh, UN Security Council because I have observed closely how much they supported having an independent investigation in Yemen in the Human Rights Council. So I expect Ireland to be like a a quiet fighter for accountability in the UN Security Council. And I I will start from the sentence that uh, Ambassador Hyland said about the linkage between starvation and war in Yemen. Uh, We we keep uh, saying that Yemenis are not starving, they are being starved. So, um, violations by all parties to the conflict led to this starvation. And um, Yemen today is known as the worst humanitarian crisis. But actually, even among the war, Yemen doesn't have to be the worst humanitarian crisis. It happened only because of the huge lack of accountability. And actually most of the accountability, and when I talk about accountability, I mean criminal accountability. Most of the criminal accountability mechanisms are controlled by the UN Security Council, especially when it comes to Yemen, because most of parties to the, direct parties to the conflict in Yemen, internally and regionally, are not, for example, uh, ratified the uh, room status. So only the Security Council can refer the Yemen situation to the uh, ICC. This also, if we have been thinking about having a special court that has nothing to do with parties to the conflict, including the Yemeni government. It's only the UN Security Council can do it. Uh, also, there is now there are many in different areas, there are many independent um, mechanisms for investigation. But the Security Council can draw a path for these mechanisms and for the results of these mechanisms where to go and how to be used for criminal accountability. So Security Council can do a lot, and I think that Ireland can, do, uh, can push for this uh, uh, very strongly. And I don't know if I can uh, consider sanctions one of the accountability mechanisms, but since the UN Security Council is dealing with sanctions, if the sanctions, if, whether in Yemen or any, any other country, if the sanctions are not balanced, mm-hmm. Are not dealing with all parties to the conflict equally, then they lose their ethical pace and they lose their uh, impact. They became political and have nothing. This is what happened in, in Yemen because sanctions uh, concentrated on only in one party to the conflict. And from our my work in the human rights and for my experience as a Yemeni citizen who are living in a conflict zone, I think that accountability is a way to peace it's a way to peace to support peace and to maintain peace in the future so through accountability also the security council can push uh, toward peace and in Yemen uh, uh, I hope I will, I ask the world and I ask Ireland also not to deal with Yemen only as a displaced camp and as if the only problem is the humanitarian aid and the humanitarian access, it's much more, more much more than this. Um, when we will not, I mean, have our lives back unless this war has been stopped. And Security Council can do a lot to push for peace, uh, uh, a peace process that includes all parties to the conflict. And um, even Yemen now is the worst humanitarian crisis in the world. Until now, there is one resolution that came out from the Security Council, a UN Security Council, which, which has been in 2015. Since 2015 until now, many things have been changed in the ground. Even the map of parties to the conflict in Yemen has been changed. And this resolution has not been changed. And it was a war resolution. This resolution should be changed. There should be another resolution. Uh, that came out of the Security Council that can emphasize on accountability, peace, and mention all parties to the conflict. Uh, And whenever we were, I keep saying whenever you look to the map of parties to the conflict in Yemen, never try to search for the good guy because they are all committing horrible violations. And they all deserve to be targeted. I mean, uh, in the UN Security uh, uh, Council, whether statements or resolutions, as those who are not really respecting the international humanitarian law. Uh, this will make a big influence in the war in Yemen. And there is, in, in especially in Yemen, there is a balance of weakness between all parties to the conflict. So a very strong body like the UN Security Council can really change the situation in Yemen and make the whole disaster and crisis stop. Um, Maybe this is all for now. Uh, And I'll I'll, I'll leave the rest for questions, thank you.
0: Raja, thank you so much. And thank you for bringing us up to date. And we'll come back to you in in the final stage and under Q&A. Um, I'm going to turn next to Lou, Lou, Louise Winstanley, who is our third speaker and Louise's uh, program and advocacy manager at AB Columbia, a role she has held 10 years now, since 2010, and previously worked as the advocacy officer for Peace Brigades International UK Section. And she spent two years in Colombia working as an international observer with Peace Brigades International. Louise has worked on the issues of human rights and sustainable development in Colombia since 2003. So a long time, Louise. Louise, what do you see as the priorities for the Security Council members if they want to build peace, prevent conflict, and strengthen accountability? Over to you.
4: Thank you, Monica, and uh, thank you also to Christian Aid and the Irish Peace and Conflict Network for asking me to speak at this very interesting and I think timely event. Ireland has had a long history of supporting peace in Colombia, not only through Irish Aid, but also Irish politicians, other experts who assisted the negotiators both prior to and during the official peace talks. Eamon Gilmore also took on a key role for the European Union. That a special envoy for the Colombian peace process. It is therefore very good to see Ireland take up a seat on the UN Security Council and as Colombia appears every three months on the agenda it will give Ireland the possibility of further consolidating the important investment it has made to date on peace in Colombia. As I have only a limited amount of time today I'm going to intervent- focus my intervention on just one of the priority areas that I think Ireland can tackle whilst on the Security Council, although there are others too. In terms of the one of the major challenges that threatens to undermine the Colombian peace process um, is the extreme level, high levels of violence against human rights defenders, former combatants in rural communities. Despite signing a peace accord in 2016, violence against human rights defenders and former combatants has escalated and the UN reported in 2020 120 human rights defenders have been killed and that since the signing of the Peace Accord, 244 former combatants. In 2020 also military intelligence was found to be spying on human rights defenders and others and selling information to neo paramilitary groups. And according to the Ministry of Defense, compared to the last year of the peace negotiations, the number of victims of massacres in Colombia had quadrupled in 2020 and combats increased by 65%. Neo-paramilitary and other illegal armed groups have strengthened their social and territorial control in areas vacated by the FARC. Whilst violence is perpetrated by all armed actors, the group most responsible are the neo-paramilitaries, who not only take the lives of the majority of human rights defenders, they are key players in the violence against communities and a major obstacle to the implementation of the peace accord. Originally, the the paramilitary groups demobilized in 2005 as part of what is known as the justice and peace process. But demobilization process only addressed the material and not the intellectual authors and financiers, which are why these groups were never fully dismantled. And the neo-paramilitary groups quickly re-emerged. The Peace Accord established an important mechanism that holds out real hope, if implemented effectively, to prevent violations against human rights defenders, communities and former combatants, and that is the National Commission for Security Guarantees. This commission is tasked with the design and implementation of a public policy to facilitate the investigation and prosecution of the intellectual authors and financial backers of the neo paramilitaries and other criminal organizations, in recognition of the fact that these groups will only effectively be dismantled if the intellectual authors are identified and prosecuted and the source of finance and political protection cut off. The National Commission for Security Guarantees is an inclusive mechanism with representatives from civil society organizations, former combatants, as well as high level government decision makers. The inclusive nature of this commission adds to its legitimacy. However, unfortunately, the National Commission on Security Guarantees has had considerable difficulty in functioning since the change of government to the Duque administration. As far back as November, 2019, civil society representatives on the commission Put forward for dialogue with the government and others, their suggestion for a roadmap for the work of the Commission. Over a year later, the government still has not responded to their proposals. The UN mission of verification, the EU and many other bodies, including civil society organisations, are all highlighting the importance of the work of this Commission if peace and the rule of law is to be established. The Security Council has a mechanism whereby it can establish a group or panel of experts to examine a situation when needed to assist in the maintenance of peace and security. Examples of when such groups have been used included apartheid in South Africa and the illegal exploitation of natural resources in the DRC. What would benefit the work of the National National Commission of Security Guarantees in Colombia is if the UN Security Council appointed a group of experts with technical expertise on organized crime to examine the situation of neo-paramilitarism in Colombia and whilst many of these groups of experts in the past have been linked to the imposition of sanctions not all have the initial group appointed to the DRC was not attached to any sanctions and we definitely would not want a group of experts in any way to be linked to sanctions in this case Given the political nature of the Security Council and the need for the Colombian government to agree on any such such proposal, this is not going to be an easy task. But what it could deliver in terms of achieving peace in Colombia is well worth the behind the scenes work. Colombia is a country which, compared to many other complex situations of conflict around the world, has a real possibility of achieving peace. But it needs a country like Ireland to throw its weight and experience behind the achieving this appointment of an expert group on organized crime that can offer the technical expertise needed at the moment. While there is considerable political division among the permanent five members of the Security Council, one area where there has always been a considerable amount of agreement is on supporting the Colombian peace process. I would therefore suggest for the two years on the Security Council, Ireland promotes the idea of a group of experts on organized crime being appointed to look at the situation of neo-paramilitarism and other criminal organizations in Colombia. And as 2021 is a key year for Colombia with its five-year anniversary of the signing of the peace accord in November, I would suggest that Ireland proposes a visit of the Security Council to Colombia once the pandemic permits to look at the security situation and to discuss with the National Commission of Security Guarantees how they are progressing on developing policy. This is a key opportunity for Ireland to build on its valuable contributions to peace in Colombia, when Colombia is at a very vulnerable stage in the peace process. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Louise, and thank you for that update. It really has familiarised uh, familiarized me in particular. Um, I sit on one of those commissions in northern
4: right.
0: <laughs> I'm a commissioner overseeing the disbandment of paramilitaries. Um, there are four of us, so sometime we should talk.
4: That would be excellent. Yes, thank you.
0: These networks are amazing in terms of networking uh, between ourselves as well. Let me turn to our fourth panellist, uh, Gustavo de Carvalho, um, who is a senior researcher at the Peace Operations and Peacebuilding Programme at the Institute for Security Studies, the institute that Ambassador Highland has just referred to in her opening remarks, uh, also based in uh, Dakar in West Africa. Gustavo, however, is based in Pretoria in South Africa. Gustavo leads initiatives related to the role of Africa in the world, focusing particularly how Africa engages with the UN, the UN Security Council, and the UN-African Union relations. So uh, Gustafa, over to you. What do you see as the priorities for the Security Council members if they want to build peace, prevent conflict and strengthen
5: accountability? Thank you so much, Monica, and, and particularly thanks for the Irish Peace and Conflict Network for this very kind invite. Uh, let me join the others also in congratulating Ireland for starting its membership in the UN Security Council. Uh, and I, I wish Ireland well, not just for Ireland's sake, but uh, I believe that as Ambassador Highland mentioned earlier, uh, Ireland succeeding is great for multilateralism and multilateralism matters for us all. Um, as Monica mentioned earlier, I work at the Institute for Security Studies in South Africa and we've spent the last couple of years focusing not only on the Security Council itself, but particularly how South African other African states can better plan, better prepare and implement their security council membership. And now that South Africa left the council in December last year, we've turned a bit into a reflective mode, trying to identify lessons and how these lessons can help other non-permanent members to be more effective and to be more successful as council members. Of course, Each country faces different contexts and goals when they join the Security Council. Uh, For instance, in 2018, when South Africa was elected uh, to the Security Council, we were in a particularly unique position. First, we run unopposed to other countries. And uh, for those of you in Ireland that followed your own candidacy, you know that was quite different to what you faced. Uh, But also, South Africa's was the third term in the Council in less than 10 years. We were changing our administration. We changing a lot in the way that we saw our own role in the world. But despite that, I still believe that some of the lessons that I will share in the next couple of minutes are still useful for countries of like Ireland to reflect. The first lesson that I wanted to bring relates to the importance of institutional planning. And particularly the need of a well-oiled machine that has the optimal number of diplomats, the right systems of approvals, the interactions between your capital and your embassies, but particularly the quality engagement with other member states, civil society, the UN secretariat, amongst others. And this is not just a bureaucratic conversation and neither is a one off process. But if there is one thing around institutional planning that I would say is the most important, is the emphasis on the human resources quality because we've seen over and over again small countries in New York being really able to punch above their weight particularly due to the quality of the permanent representatives political coordinators uh, or even their file experts a second lesson and I was reflecting on that when the previous speakers were, t- were talking earlier is that Ambition is important, but so is realistic planning. Because the one thing that countries first learned when they, they joined the security council is that prioritization is the council, is different to prioritization in the campaign process. Because it's quite difficult for countries to find a balance of implementing what are its stated priorities to what are its pursued priorities. Because we see in campaigns, countries tend to provide a wide and a vast number of key issues. But when it gets to implementation, the challenges of a day-to-day interaction, the challenges of dealing in the council that that is so uh, blocked by by deadlocks on a daily basis become a a key issue. And in that sense, creating a larger sense of general predictability is something that countries can do from day one. In our assessment, in our analysis, this is one area that we feel that South Africa could have been more clear from start it took us at least 10 months to really get a sense of what were the big priorities for South Africa. And once we had a better sense, we knew more or less how to manage the expectations, but also in which areas, and we've been talking a lot about accountability, in which areas South Africa was accountable to, particularly from our side as civil society organization. But the third lesson is that in the absence of clear strategies, many countries end up pursuing their membership simply as a process of gaining visibility or prestige, and particularly when it comes to thematic areas. And this is what I would say is that sometimes less is more. Do we always need those big outcome statements like a resolution or presidential statements? How do we avoid having some of those big outcomes, like weak resolutions that don't necessarily advance agendas, but also, don't even help with the implementation of issues. And I think it's something that we started talking a bit earlier. <laughs> I was at the Highland mentioned earlier around peacekeeping as a priority. And the key there is not just when we have a presidency month or we have a big open debate around peacekeeping. And I think the comments that she made around bringing these issues throughout the membership on a day to day discussions, on informal engagements. And, you know, the forum beyond the Security Council sometimes it's more important than a very visible uh, meeting that we may have at the Security Council. And we've seen some interesting model in recent years. I think some others are what not to do and some others are what to do. So let me focus on the positive one. I think Swedish Sweden did a very interesting role a couple of years back when it brought Women, Peace and Security as a priority because they... Idea for Sweden at that time, it wasn't necessarily to have some big open debates around women, peace, and security, but rather to make sure that we had women, peace, and security language in every single resolution that was approved in the Security Council during their membership. And they were successful in that. So we remember Sweden not just because they brought new resolutions, but rather because there was important language that was included in very specific cases. And I think some of these areas that we are seen as priority for Ireland could well be some of those. Ambassador Highland mentioned youth peace and security, which I think is one of the low low hanging fruits for the Security Council, but one of the very difficult ones, where we have three resolutions in in the, in the last couple of years, and the last resolution, possibly the biggest success, was just because youth peace and security remain as an issue of the UN Security Council. And it has been a while since we. Last got a champion on, on this area. I think last time that we really had a country pursuing these issues was Peru a couple of years back. But also, in a way, to use the presidency month or months quite wisely. Because the challenge then is that, especially in countries that see that month as their end all for their membership, is that they tend to overly pack, they tend to not really be particularly focused, and try to see that more as a means of prestige and visibility. For us in our analysis, in our research in the last couple of years, it's really important that first don't overpackage, find like-minded nations that you can uh, uh, pursue your priorities together, be selective, but also identify that sometimes that incremental progress is better than just having bad, visible, irrelevant outcomes. But most important that the presidency month should never and should not be seen in isolation from the rest of the membership, but or in the council, but also with wider priorities within the council. I wanted to go very briefly so I can conclude my remarks on, on a final lesson that relates to the idea of finding leverage. And this is something that we see very clearly on the South African side in, 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 in its membership in the Security Council. South Africa, possibly the most successful elements that it had in membership was to bring a group of unusual countries, uh, the African member states or the A3. Not because it's unusual for Africa to have a voice in the council, but particularly that we've seen an unprecedented number of joint statements, number of press takeouts, number of joint positions, which didn't happen before. But the result of that was that African voices in the council during the membership of South Africa became better heard and certainly it's not unusual for regions like Europe to have your joint statements whether it's through the European Union or what we call the like-minded countries but particularly that it shows the importance of navigating in a complex geopolitical environment and finding alliances, partnerships, engagements with member states that ensure that the outcomes that we would like to see are better implemented. Now, I think there is much I would like to talk about here, but I just wanted to conclude with what I think there will be some opportunities for Ireland in 2021 and 2022. The first of them, and as uh, Ambassador Hyland mentioned earlier, the first month is over, you have not a long time left. Two years is a short period and we may see your membership in the Security Council a bit as a sprint, where you join the Council, you race, you leave. But there is an opportunity of seeing that was a relay race where you get some lessons of countries that came before you, where you work together with other countries and particularly with ETAN members that are working towards often very similar goals, but you also provide the process of passing the baton to countries that are gonna follow you. The issue there is that how are we gonna see the council coming together? Of course, we have a new administration in the United States. We have a new composition of the Security Council, but we really need to find ways of breaking those deadlocks. A few years ago, those deadlocks were broken by what we were calling the rise of the E-10. Has not been so active in the the last couple of years, except maybe when it comes to working methods issues. But Ireland is in a very interesting position of identifying ways in which either the E10 as a whole or large groups of member states in the Security Council to really break some of those deadlocks. And I think the issue presented around Syria, it's a very important one. But even when it comes to issues that historically were not so controversial, like women, peace and security, we do need to find a new space for unity in the Council to advance on issues, even if it's incremental progress. But the last two things I wanted to say, that one is events like this. We found in our case in South Africa that this last term of South Africa in the Council was the term that we've seen South Africa working the most with civil society. But it was also a space in which we had to debate, to rationalize, and to discuss how we see our country positioning itself within the Security Council, even when there is disagreement. And that is very important because it allows not to avoid controversy, but really to put accountability into member states that are there to represent not only uh, the 119 something member states in the, in, in the United Nations, but also societies. Finally, and Ambassador Highland mentioned a bit of that, is the importance of African issues and the African Union in particular. Because if we consider that more than 50% of all council discussions currently and more than 70% of chapter seven resolutions are related to Africa. We need to find better ways of bringing African voices, but also bringing better African institutions that are dealing with these issues on a daily basis. Certainly there is the ongoing problem of uh, financing of peace operations by the UN. Maybe a new American administration will change that, but maybe Uh, a new American administration will better highlight some of the challenges that have been somehow dormant in the last couple of years. And advancing those discussions is very important. For Ireland to better engage with the A3, that after the last two years is really seen more and more as an entity and unified voices to be expected in the council. For Ireland to engage more with the broader African membership in the United Nations, but particularly with the African Union, not only in Addis Ababa, but to the African group in New York, but also the uh, their AU representation to the United Nations. With that, I want once again to wish Ireland luck. From our side at the ISS, we have worked very closely with the Irish government in the last couple of years, and we remain available to provide any supports that you may require to make not only Ireland, Ireland's participation successful, but multilateralism as a success as a whole. Thank you very much.
0: Thanks very much uh, Gustafa and some really good um, ambitious aims there. Um, I like the one where you're asking Ireland and I think it's right um, to seek and to find uh, unity. Um, This is going to be difficult as we all know at the UN but it's definitely an ambition worth having. Um, So thank you for your remarks And let me turn to Siobhan Willis now, who also is a colleague. Um, And again, I haven't seen her for some time. Um, Based in the Transitional Justice Institute at my own university, Ulster University. Um, Siobhan's research, um, where she is the professor of law, has been around the protection of civilians, peacekeeping and the use of force. Siobhan has authored Protecting Civilians the Obligations of Peacekeepers, uh, for the Oxford University Press in 2009, and as the co-producer and co-director of Right Now I Want to Scream, and it stays with you. Those audience members who registered in advance uh, will have received a link to the documentary, Right Now I Want to Scream, and uh, Siobhan will speak to it, and the note that we will reshare that in the chat line afterwards, if you wish to follow up on this webinar. And Siobhan, so it's your turn now to say what you see are the priorities for the council members and how to build peace, prevent conflict and strengthen accountability. Over to you.
6: Thank you very much, everyone. And thank you very much for inviting me. I'm going to focus my answer on peacekeeping because, well, it's the only thing I know anything about. Um, And I'm going to focus my answer, tailoring it to the five minute clip Um, that was shared beforehand and that clip is from a film that I co-produced and co-directed in 2020 with participants from Rio's Favelas and it links with a film I co-produced and co-directed in 19, not 1918 (laughs) 2018, um, with participants from uh, City Soleil. Um, So, uh, Sonia uh, Hyland mentioned uh, the important role that Ireland plays um, in its contribution of peacekeeping. And she and all the other speakers have stressed the importance of accountability. And I share that view. And I think um, accountability, one way of improving accountability is to have very clear, visible standards with which uh, troops are meant to comply with. And therefore, in my view, one of the most important contributions Security Council members could make would be to exert pressure on the Secretary General and the Under Secretary General for Peacekeeping to adopt a bulletin formally committing UN peacekeepers to compliance with international human rights law standards, including Article 9 of the Basic Principles on Use of Force 1990, which affirms that int- intentional lethal use of firearms may only be made when strictly unavoidable in order to protect life. This rule is customary law and it applies to any use of force that is not governed by the laws of armed conflict. Therefore it applies to UN peacekeepers except when they are engaged as combatants in armed conflict. But currently it is not applied in practice and it is not reflected in peacekeepers' rules of engagement, and it should be noted that peacekeepers now carry out a wide range of activities when they're peacekeeping. Stabilization missions are involved in a great many aspects of uh, peacekeeping, much of which may uh, may relate to law enforcement. So alongside adopting that bulletin, or something similar to a bulletin, asserting that UN peacekeepers must comply with the international human rights law, I think it would be important to pressure the UN Department of Peace Operations to improve compliance with the requirement already set out in the Secretary General's bulletin on observance by the United Nations forces of international humanitarian law that UN forces must make a clear distinction at all times between civilians and combatants. Currently, UN rules of engagement do not make a clear distinction between combatants and so-called spoilers. And this has serious consequences, which I would like to illustrate through through some comments on the five-minute clip that I mentioned. And just as a brief background to the film, in 2019 and 2020, the state of Rio de Janeiro killed on average six people a day in operations by the police or army in Rio's favelas. General Heleno, who is currently Brazil's Minister for Institutional Security, was formerly commander of the UN peacekeeping mission in Haiti from 2005 to 2006. He was the first mission commander. And most of Brazil's military troops have served at some point in Haiti. Could I have slide two, please? The UN stabilization mission in Haiti was deployed between 2004 and 2017, and there was no armed conflict in Haiti during this period. There was a lot of so-called banditry, which is violence by drug traffic gangs, and also by state-supported gangs. But both the UN Department of Peace Operations and General Heleno confirmed that the mission's principal task was policing. General Heleno said we were facing what was at root a police problem. and The Department of Peacekeeping Operations also said that the core of the problem in Haiti is policing. Could I have the next slide, please? Um, this uh, statement was made by General Heleno on Radio Metropole in 2004. He said, we must kill the bandits, but it must be the bandits only, and I'm highlighting this because I think it's quite shocking really that the commander of the UN peacekeeping mission can announce publicly a shoot to kill policy and have no, there be no comeuppance about it, no criticism from the UN, nothing. Could I have the next slide please? I'm racing through this as quickly as possible because I know it's time limited. So in July 2005, the UN conducted a raid in a densely populated residential neighborhood in Cite-Soleil. In its own reports, the UN stated that UN peacekeepers used 22,700 bullets, 78 grenades, and five mortars. As you can see from this picture of Edrin's house, most of the houses in this area were made of salvaged metal and cloth. Consequently, a lot of people were killed in their homes by bullets, penetrating through the walls and roofs. The U.S. Embassy estimated that 20 women and children were killed. NGOs estimate that much higher, some as high as 60 people were killed. Edrin's daughter was killed. She was 10 years old. She was killed by a bullet coming through the roof, and I've seen the bullet holes. It's very clear. Could I have the next slide, please? After that operation, General Heleno stated on Radio Metropole, we carried out an operation to show that the forces of order are powerful and that we have the means to impose the law. We will carry out operations, exert pressure, kill and arrest bandits." Again, there was no, no comeuppance on this from the UN, no public criticism of whatever there may have been in private. A number of other operations were carried out, particularly in the years uh, between 2005 and 2007. Two very large ones similar to this one in December 2006 and uh, February 2007. Could I have the next slide, please? Um, Well, I should have mentioned uh, on the previous slide that the UN Secretary General himself acknowledged that there were civilian casualties following that July 2005 operation, but no one from the UN or from the Haitian government visited the neighborhood afterwards to investigate the scale of casualties to offer medical help. Doctors we interviewed told us that wounded people rang them asking for help during the operation, but the UN prevented anyone from entering the neighborhood for 24 hours, and the reason for that was to make sure that the bandits couldn't escape, but it also meant the doctors couldn't come in. The picture on the previous slide was was of John Victor whose daughter was killed by a bullet coming through the roof. Her baby survived, and I thank that's him in the corner there, but she herself was killed. Thank you for going back on the slide. Now could you go forward again? Thank you. More recently, um, General Helena, who is now Minister for um, Institutional Security in Brazil, he has given numerous interviews, particularly during the campaign for Bolsonaro, um, the election campaign in 2018 and again in 2019, about how he thinks uh, the problem of gang crime in the favelas should be dealt with, and he is constantly referencing his experience in Haiti. And he advocates the same approach the UN forces took in Haiti to Brazil's, Brazil's policing in the favelas. So in one interview on Globo TV, he said, Our rules of engagement in Haiti were highly flexible. They gave the command of the scene the power to lethally wound anyone who had a hostile action or intention. This means that a guy armed with a rifle, assaulting someone or stealing cargo becomes a target whom I can eliminate, and whoever shot him should be exempt from legal liability. Um, and if I could have the next slide, um, General Heleno talked about the rules of engagement being very flexible, and I've, in order to illustrate that, I've drawn up some screen grabs from the Rules of Engagement for Minusta. And I'm focusing just on the rules governing use of force by UN troops, the MINUSTA mission, in situations of civil unrest. So at the top there, uh, the definition of civil unrest in the rules of engagement for MINUSTA. As you can see, that's signed there um, by uh, the Under Secretary General for Peacekeeping Operations. So the definition of civil unrest was the commission, perpetration or instigation of acts of violence which affect public peace and order. And I'm sure you will agree that there's a very broad definition of civil unrest. It could be throwing bricks through windows, uh, burning tires, setting fire to cars. There is nothing in that definition which suggests that the level of civil the, the level of violence must be something that threatens life or threatens serious injury. The next uh, little screen bag clip that's up there sets out the rule, which is set out in the, was set out in the Rules Engagement for Minusta of the level of force that they were allowed to use in response to civil unrest. It states, use of force, up to and including deadly force, to prevent or put a stop to acts of civil unrest is authorised. Well, given that the definition of civil unrest makes no reference to the that it must be at a level that would threaten life, that is a very broad definition, as General Hellenio said, it is very flexible. And the level of force that is permitted. Of course, all UN peacekeeping um, troops must, it is a part of their general uh, approach to any of their operations, uh, is a duty to use minimum and proportional force, and that is included in the rules of engagement there too. So it states, any force used must be limited in its intensity and duration to that which is necessary to achieve the objective. Well, that's very valuable, but if the objective is not constrained by uh, legal standards, if it's not framed within, if it's very broadly framed, then the the use of limiting it in its intensity and duration to that which is necessary to achieve that objective has limited value. Thank you. Um, Now, uh, I'll just wrap up um, with, so in sum, a priority for the Security Council as regards peacekeeping, peace should be, in my view, to put pressure on the Secretary-General to adopt a bulletin formally stating that UN peacekeepers must comply with human rights standards, including those regulating use of force. If the UN plans an operation that may result in casualties, and it will know if it's likely to result in casualties, given the if by knowing how many uh, tanks, how much armor, how many helicopters it is taking, then medical help should be on standby close to the scene. And this, this is something important that I think um, Ireland could address, is that currently um, there there is no requirement for uh, troop contributing states. They bring medical supplies, medical teams, ambulances, all the rest of it, but only to serve their own troops. There is no clear commitment of who should look after, provide medical care to the residents of the host state. Uh, It's true the International Committee of the Red Cross can can and does go in in and and provide help. But I think it should be formally stated that uh, medical help must be on hand, because in those operations no no medical help was on hand. Um, Another point, if the UN carries out an operation that may have resulted in casualties, they must follow up immediately with an investigation. Ideally, an independent investigation, and that did not ha- happen in Haiti. In fact, no one from the UN or the Haitian government has visited that neighbourhood where that operation took place at all, even though I have um, I've been to the UN myself and asked them to go, and I've brought people from who, were, who's, uh, who's, who suffered human rights violations, whose children were killed, I brought them to Camp Delta, and uh, they've been interviewed by the human rights officer at Minusta, this was in 2000. And eighty, 2017. Sorry, um, but they nobody uh, went out to the neighbourhood where the operations happened. Um, so uh, that's um, yes, one small uh, related point. Getting the UN to uh, the UN Secretary General to adopt a bulletin is going to be hard work because there will be resistance. But in the meantime, the Ireland could push. For as Sonia Highland, when they're looking at mandates, they could look at ensuring that mandates and rules of engagement comply with human rights standards and ensuring that those standards are incorporated into rules of engagement, even if you don't have a general document. Thank you very much. Thank you so much,
0: um, Siobhan, for that. Um, It's been really useful also to get the up to date information from when you first started doing that work and, and making that recording, um, in some ways it's quite shocking. Not in some ways, in every way it is quite shocking. And thank um, you for those proposals. Um, can I thank all of our speakers now, um, Raja and Gustafa, and Louise, and Siobhan, and Finn, um, and Sonia, who is still with us. Um, and so now I um, we have the opportunity um, to have the Q and A's and some have come in, which my colleague Catherine O'Rourke at the Transitional Justice Institute, who's been behind us today along with Katrina, um, have um, screened some of these and there are some questions um, that I'll come to in a moment. Um, But first, can I ask, what can an elected member state like Ireland do to have a meaningful impact on peace and security? Um, Finn, I might come to you first on that, Um, and then I'll turn to Raja and to Siobhan.
2: So, I mean, I I think there are obvious places. So, of course, one can say by action, indeed, a member state who is elected uh, for a two year um, cycle to the council has the opportunity, both in terms of the words it uses, because words matter. Right. We all really the way we position ourselves. the alliances it makes, the positions it states and what it can hold, all of that is possible. But I, I, I do think we have to be very clear about both the limits and the possibilities of that. And that's really, I think the key point that's come out of this discussion for me today. And I think more broadly is um, both the strategic choices that the country in question has to make. and um, The things that won't be seen about what the country in question will do, not everything. In fact, the most successful things will never be a press statement. They may never even be attributed to Ireland in the public domain. Um, And I I think this analogy, which was used by Gustavo of the relay race, which is the baton that's taken from the countries that have similar, that have a values-led approach to being on the council who have left and the countries that are coming in. It's not a one stop shop. And in fact, if we are to radically transform the security council space to meaningfully engage, then this role of kind of the long relay and the relationships in developing that long relay meaningful and the active role once you come off the council is really what a small country like Ireland can do on the council. So that's where I'm very much about what the process of this will be rather than the one stop shop of a particular issue that will be moved one way or the other. There will be particular issues that Ireland will move and should rightly get credit for. But the bigger work is gonna be done by the kinds of processes and relationships and the long-term commitment that Ireland has made already to the issues that it works on. I mean, that's the honest broker that does not get compromised by its time. So it comes off the council as a continued trusted partner on the issues
0: that it got on the council for. That's where Ireland will make the difference. Thank you so much Finn for that and Raja, do you want to come in here on this same question? What can we learn? Uh, What lessons and um, from the past actions that Ireland should be aware of? Well actually yours is actually on the meaningful role that Ireland can play. We'll come to the other one in a moment. So what do you
3: Well there is a lesson I have learned from the Human Rights Council that even if there States like UK, France, and US doesn't want something to be happened. And then states like Ireland, Netherlands, and other states jump in and insist that uh, there's this something that should be happened, even if it is up uh, against the desire of these states, it happens. So the problem with the UN Security Council is the veto. With the Human Rights Council, we have uh, voting, but with the, with the Security Council, it's veto. But still, if this position, if this sound uh, is up, the kind, I mean, asking for accountability, for having a space for civil society, for being, I mean, uh, independent and balanced when dealing with conflict zones, uh, it will make a lot of difference.
0: Thank you. Um, It's interesting this issue of civil society is coming up, um, and indeed our very network today is coming out of that. Um, So it's, you know, this is big high level stuff at the UN and Security Council. Um, But also it's about those links from the bottom up and what difference can people like you and everyone in their own countries um, do to feed in and help Ireland uh, in the next two years
6: um Siobhan, have you anything to say on this um well, just briefly it's uh along the same lines as um the b- points i was making already but um ireland has contributed contributes heavily into peacekeeping missions and ireland I- irish troops uh if if they're um dealing with a, an issue a, a bank robbery or floods or the EU vaccine war across a border that doesn't exist anymore, or does exist, or soft, hard borders, all of those issues, I'm sure that they comply with human rights standards. If Ireland, the issue then is, if Ireland is deployed as a UN peacekeeper, then they should also comply with human rights standards. And that could be incorporated even through the Doyle or a form of legislation ensuring that Irish peacekeepers must comply with human rights standards and that is showing leadership and will influence the um, other other missions and that's my little contribution. Thank you. Um,
0: This question is about what lessons can we learn from the Security Council membership and past actions by the Council that Ireland should be aware of? Um, And briefly, Gustafo and perhaps Louise, if you would like to just take a few moments on that one. Um, and then we can turn um, to the floor. I've been looking at some of the questions here. Um, so, Gustavo, do you want to come in on this? You've already mentioned, actually, and very similar to what Finn said, to focus on process, to focus on relationships, to focus on passing the baton, and those were the lessons from South Africa. Um, so, in terms of past, I actions,
5: think I've got a bit of the table. Can You repeat the question, please.
0: Okay, it's about the past actions. What lessons Ireland? You did raise this already, by the way, drawing on South Africa. And um, given that Ireland's on the Security Council and looking at past actions by the Council, uh, what should Ireland be aware of? What lessons are you okay or we're in the of still. Okay. Let's go to Louise and we'll come back to you, Gustavo, in a moment. Louise?
4: Uh, yes, yeah, so thank you. Um, I suppose I really know the work of the Security Council in relation to Colombia, so I, I would need to kind of focus my answer a bit on that. But I think the Security Council was uh, really very useful to Colombia in terms of uh, thinking about the mission of verification. So the mission of verification isn't a normal kind of peacekeeping mission that the Security Council sent in. It's a political mission. It was able to adapt in order to facilitate what was needed in Colombia. And I think that's really important. I think bodies like the Security Council often find it, I, I suspect, find it very difficult to adapt. But I think if the Security Council was able to learn from the fact of its flexibility in certain situations and the way in which it negotiated Um, to have something that was acceptable to the FARC and to uh, the Colombian government. I think what it produced was an extremely important mechanism for monitoring the peace process. And uh, because of its involvement in the monitoring of the peace process, what has been also important is that it's insisted on the implementation of the peace accord with the new president, who was, and including his party, against um, we're actually supporting the no vote um, for uh, against the peace accord. So I think in, these, in this kind of way, the Security Council has played a very key role in terms of Colombia, <clears throat> in terms of monitoring and ver- verifying the um, peace accord. And it is proving to be uh, invaluable, uh, the work of the uh, mission of verification, because it's bringing important issues before the Council and insisting on the implementation of the peace accord. Um, mm. So I think flexibility and trying to negotiate what is appropriate for that country is going to be really important and not kind of just sticking to the normal um, run of the mill um, way okay. which it operated previously.
0: Thanks very much, Louise. Um, I couldn't emphasize enough, as we know from women, peace and security work, but also I was a signatory uh, to the Good Friday Agreement. Um, and 22 years later, I'm still working on its implementation. Um, but the biggest lesson I learned in all those years was it was probably difficult enough to write an agreement and um, to make those promises to our people. The hard work was the implementation, the hard work is uh, verification. We never used that word, and perhaps we should have. We did over guns, perhaps. But the verification of what we've promised is so important um, and so I guess Sonia that's a big issue in terms of your role is that whole monitoring role um, the resolutions that have come out of the Security Council um, how are they being implemented you used the word omnibus and I think it's great and it's really important to have those resolutions you and I and all the speakers today have seen the impact they have on the ground because we do use them. Um, but the most important thing of all is to actually see the impact and to have that implementation. I don't know if you want to say something on that.
1: No, I mean, I agree. I mean, I think a huge, a huge challenge really is, well, obviously this is a huge challenge to get a resolution through the council on anything, but a big challenge is the implementation part. Um, and it goes back a little bit maybe to what I what I had said before in terms of particularly the role
0: Um, I think Sonia, you might have you might have frozen. Yeah. On the informal resolutions, um, because we mentioned that we had uh, during interim,
1: make sure that security was in all of the resolutions, and um, we're in the peacekeeping resolutions and the and the special, special mission.
0: Okay, am I still with everyone? I just want to check in. Yeah, we can hear you, Monica. Yeah. Okay, grand. Um, I think we just lost Sonia, so I'm going to go to the what I'm seeing coming in on my screen here. Um, and it's a pity that Sonia's not with us, but maybe I'll take one of the others and then I'll come to Rafika's question. Um, Anne Walker, who is involved in the Women in Comf- uh, Community Transformation Group, which I know well here in Belfast and Northern Ireland, um, is going on behalf of that group to the uh, Council for the Status and Women um, in March. Um, Is there anything her group could focus on or push that would be beneficial, um, particularly now that Ireland is on the Security Council? Um, There's another question, which is uh, what are the um, reforms, the possibility of reforming, this is a big one, and what are the possibilities of reforming the constitution of the Security Council? Um, and that's that's pretty tough. Um, and it once Ambassador Highland comes back. And again, I'll ask Graffita's question or if you any of you choose to come in on how do we stop the arms sales to Saudi mm-hmm. Arabia um, and to the United Arab Emirates? And how do we start serious peace negotiations in relation to Yemen? Um so first, I don't know, Finn, perhaps. Okay, <laughs> just, just the
2: simple to, questions.
0: Take that one about the Council for the Status mm-hmm. of Women, because you're
2: pretty yeah. familiar with that. I mean, I'll say a word to that and maybe a, a word to reform. You know, I, I think one of the challenges for CSW for any of the Human Rights Council's meeting in, in March, we had GA 75, is for how, how to maximize the engagement of civil society in the abstract because it's all on, it's it's not there. And, and much of the kind of nitty gritty of this work is done in the corridors when you can find somebody and have a conversation or, you know, the informality is what lives and breathes and helps us actually move some of these issues, the connectivity. So um, I think it's understanding. So the first thing is one of the advantages of COVID is we can bring more people possibly into the room than we used to because it's expensive to fly to New York for CSW. It's expensive to stay in New York. Lots of That's beyond the reach of many organizations. So I think the innovation here is how do we create bigger rooms to actually bring more people in? And the second thing I would say on women, peace, and security in particular, as, as Sonia's already said, is the challenge is not the language of the resolutions. The challenge, the challenge is the delivery of the of the actual of the, of the mechanisms. And the second challenge, so I, I think Sonia um, alluded to, and I, I want to stress, is what's happening to women's civil society in many of these countries. Colombia is a really good example hundreds of women HRDs are being killed across the globe every year. They're not even getting to advocate on the part of women, peace and security because they're not surviving their advocacy. And so I think if we were going to start, one of the really simple places to start is in order to protect the women, peace and security agenda, we have to protect women, human rights defenders, and we have to protect civic space around the globe. So that's the issue I think I would particularly highlight as well as just holding states to what they've agreed to like it's that simple you know that this accountability piece of the promise that was made maybe just to say on the reform issue I mean I I teach the theory of reforming the security council but when I and my mandate engage with the security council every day I do not see that we are in a, a moment where we're going to see renegotiation of this. I mean, it's a little bit like who's those who have power are literally not going to vote to give it away. And so I, I don't see us, despite all of the in, inadequacies and lack of meaningful representation for uh, for many across the structure of the council, that we're going to see fundamental
0: reform. Finn, so, do you think um, Africa should have a permanent seat? There's a question. Mm, I mean, I, the answer would- is there's a really good
2: argument for that, Monica. There's also an argument for the BRICS, for the largest, for Brazil, for India. I mean, these are the largest and most populous countries on the globe, and they are not represented in the council. Mm. But this would require a fundamental, and I think what I would encourage us, think of the world we are in right now, where the authoritarians are, descend- are ascendant, where civil society is shrinking, where multilateral space is under consistent threat, I'm not sure this is where you really want to open up the UN Charter for renegotiation, and that perhaps is a conservative view, but I think you have to be really sure of what you might
0: get or lose in the process of that
2: negotiation.
0: Okay, thank you. Um, I'm conscious that we didn't do radikas about serious negotiations in Yemen. Um, Raja, do you want to maybe address that and also this arms issue, which we have been familiar with for a number of years? And and Ambassador Highland also raised it, in terms of this proliferation of arms, but in particular, the arms that are still circulating and the war that's going on in Yemen.
3: Yes. Actually, when we started to work in documenting violations uh, in Yemen and then to do a lot of advocacy work around the world, we thought at the beginning that it's going to be enough for the world to know what's happening in Yemen in order to act. And then we discovered that the war in Yemen is not forgotten, it's ignored. One reason behind this was the financial interest, was the arms trade between uh, states like UK, US, France, and the Saudis and Emiratis. It's a lot of money that influence um, the way that these states has act toward Yemen politically and even toward accountability and having even any kind of investigation in Yemen. So to keep selling weapons to parties to the conflict who are committing horrible violations is just like a green light for them to continue and to give them like a promise that they will never be held accountable. So I'm straight, it's much more than just providing weapons to parties to the conflict who are committing horrible violations, it's to to provide them with the power to continue. And there was a question about uh, how any Yemeni government will just Uh, um, practice uh, accountability. None of the Yemeni actors will do any kind of accountability because they are all uh, criminals. And when I talk about accountability in Yemen, I talk about international accountability for many reasons. First, the war in Yemen is not only local. So it's not only the local groups like Houthis and the government. Also, we have a proxy war. We have Iran, the United Arab Emirates and Saudis. And we have this international dimension, which is providing weapons to parties to the conflict. So any local mechanism will not deal with all of these violations. That's why I'm asking for international mechanisms for accountability, like referring the situation in Yemen to ICC or special court, or any, or the UN Security Council should explore what other mechanisms for accountability can be used in Yemen. So I'm not depending on the parties to the conflict to help them th- themselves accountable.
0: Okay, I mean, there was a question that you can think about, which was that if all you did say in your talk that um, the yes. violations are right across the whole piece, and when you have violations across the whole peace. Who, who gets to head up? Um, yeah. So
3: we, when we say that we want peace, we mean that parties to the conflict will sit in the table and they will agree in order to have a shape of state again, because Yemen today is controlled by armed, armed groups. And we, don't, we almost don't have a state. There is a huge collapse of the state. So the peace is to stop the war, to have a shape of state again, to to restart our life again, but for accountability, it's another mechanisms.
0: Okay, thank you, um, Siobhan, There was a question, perhaps it's from Walt Gilroy. Um, how did you get? A, how did you manage to get a copy of the rules of engagement? Um, a very quick answer. And and was it only? And we know it isn't. Um, but let you say it. Was it only in Haiti that you came across that shocking? A discovery that you saw. And I know that you're going to go wider than that, but we've only got a couple
6: of minutes. Yes. um, I'm not going into how I got a copy of the rules of engagement. It was a long, long time ago when I was in Haiti and uh, I was there on the day of the dead. I went to um, the ceremony in the graveyard. It's a big voodoo ceremony. Thousands of people are there. It's jam packed. Uh, My driver, uh, interpreter was a lawyer. Everybody was piling in. climbing on graves, talking and talking. And a lot of people were curious about me because I was one of only two non-Haitians there. The other one was a cameraman from the New York Times. So it was just me in my summer dress and my summer hat. And everyone wanted to know what I was doing there. So I talked and I got information. so that's (laughs) the first question. Uh, The second um, is the situation. How does that situation, uh, does it, uh, I have only, I have not researched in any depth any other countries, but I know from screening the first film, it stays with you. And um, I'm starting, we recently started screening the second film, right now I want to screen, that people in the audience and actually also people from within the UN um, have said to me that this is not a problem confined simply to Haiti. It exists in other places, it's quite upsetting when someone from the audience steps up and says, this happened to my family in another country. So it is not just Haiti.
0: Brilliant, Uh, thank you. Um, Ambassador Highland, Sonia has rejoined us. So has Gustafa, so thank you. Um, Sonia, a question we didn't come up and it's probably, but just it's current, Myanmar, the coup. But this is not a question about the coup. This is a question about the Rohingyas. And it comes from Helen Maher, who's part of the Rohingya Action Ireland group. Um, She's deeply concerned about what's happening. Um, And obviously we know about the accountability we know that there was the UN investigation team. We know that what they said and they found it in terms of uh, around ethnic cleansing. We know the ICC have called um, the army and indeed the foreign minister, who is on, on Zuki, who's now under house arrest, to account for those actions. So Helen's question really is, um, what can the UN Security Council do to keep this? Well, it probably will keep it on the agenda now, given what's happening. Um, so maybe just a couple of seconds. We didn't address that today, but it's a good question.
1: Okay, I hope my connection stays um, stays now for this. But um, I might just try and answer some of the questions that were that you were mm. posing to me before. Um, just in relation to UN Security Council reform, I mean, I think from Ireland's point of view, we've made this very, very clear. We're absolutely convinced that the UN Security Council needs reform. Um, the Council was created in the aftermath of World War Two. It reflects a post-World War II uh, world order and um, population and, and power distribution, let's say, um, and it absolutely um, under-represents huge swathes of the globe, including Africa, as you pointed out, um, but also the BRICS uh, and, and many other countries. It's very much child of its time um and you know it's it's long past time i think uh to to, to see security council reform having said that i agree with fanula it's you know people who have power don't give it up easily um, the permanent five obviously have a veto uh, potentially on security council reform and therefore i think it's it's i think there, it's been 20 years now actually that there has been a working group under the general assembly looking at the issue of security council reform it hasn't honestly made much progress in 20 years. And again, I think that's very much because there are one or two um, permanent members who simply won't allow that progress to happen. Ireland consistently calls for the beginning of negotiate text-based negotiations. So in other words, put a text down in terms of different options and start negotiating. That's how things get done in the UN. And we've constantly and consistently called for that. In terms of what our own um, thinking is, I mean, again, we have, we have a number of different ideas, but we've also said that we're very much open to look at other ideas, to look at, to look at what might raise consensus, but particularly I think our focus would be on a Security Council that better represents the global distribution and particularly better represents the global distribution um, of population That obviously, I think, uh, speaks to better representation for Africa, whether that's a permanent seat or whether that's something else. Um, But clearly, that would be one of the key issues I think that we would want to see addressed. And again, we've said this very, very clearly and very publicly, um, but text-based negotiations continue to be blocked by a number of member states who who simply don't want um, progress on this. The other thing, though, I would say in respect of Security Council um, reform is that, there are other also other ways of looking at Security Council reform or other ways of trying to deal with some of the issues. One of the things, again, that we've been very strong in championing is the idea that um, permanent members commit not to use their veto uh, in respect of issues where there is uh, grave um, violations of international humanitarian law, war crimes and genocide. So in other words, that even if you can't get agreement on full comprehensive reform of the Security Council, we should still be pushing for specific um smaller and um, more, more uh, concrete or, or specific reforms that may make sure that the Security Council, at least on certain issues and particularly around genocide and war crimes, um, does its job and, and, that, and that there's a commitment not to use a veto in certain, in certain circumstances. Because again, we have seen um, permanent members sometimes use vetoes for various different reasons, but including in respect of some of the gravest um, crimes. And I think Garner will continue to, to push for that and continue to speak out for that um, again. I suppose the difficulty, therefore, is that if you have five permanent members with vetoes, it's very difficult to, to persuade them to give it up. Um, but I mean, I think we certainly feel that the legitimacy of the Security Council is very much linked and the credibility of the Security Council is very much linked, A, to its capacity to act, particularly to act in respect of the gravest crimes and the war crimes, genocide and so on. But also its legitimacy and credibility is linked to better reflecting um, the demographic, demographic balance um, globally at the moment. Um, Oh, sorry, you asked oh, the Myanmar question. Yeah, so Myanmar actually is on the agenda of the council today. It's just been put on the agenda um, today in response to in response to the coup um, there. So it's an ongoing, it's an ongoing issue. So we'll need to see what the council um, decides. But I think it's today and tomorrow it's also going to be discussed.
0: Thank you. And probably the Rohingya issue will never come off the table um and this will probably yeah. bring back on, but we'll leave yeah. that for the second because um there's a very interesting question here from another colleague from the university and also our former minister of education and finance too in northern ireland who was also a signatory to the good friday agreement sean farren and he's asked a question um in what ways does the good friday agreement in northern ireland offer models for conflict resolution In a way that perhaps Ireland can also raise. I know Ireland did in terms of um, getting elected to the council because obviously Ireland was a signatory uh, to the agreement and learned great deal as we all did. Um, So I guess the people most familiar would be Finn and possibly Louise where that agreement was also used and South Africa I have to say Gustafa if you want to come in on this because we if anyone talks about actions and lessons, we took a lot from South Africa when we were negotiating because it was one of the few places that had come through the transition and transformation just before us. So talk about passing the baton. And we were very grateful, very grateful to South Africa for what it did. And so I'm open to Finn and Gustaf because we've only got a few minutes left. I guess, yeah, I would just
2: say, I mean, one of the things that worries me is that the model that we have of that sort of period where inclusive peace agreements were generally understood to be the way in which we would really delve with both the causalities, the conditions conducive to conflict and comprehensive peace agreements that included all parties, including the parties that people did not want at the table and the commitment to seeing through those peace agreements that that we are losing ground globally in that. And that's the model, the, the Northern Ireland model with all its flaws, which all of us know really well. And what we're seeing instead, I think, at least certainly, and Sonia and I have talked about this again, is the replacement of a conflict management model with a terrorism model, actually, in many parts of the world, including the, the models that we're seeing, the issues we're seeing under the, the scrutiny of the council, is that we're seeing the Sahel, also, so many areas in which we're trying to actually move away from that model of addressing conditions conducive, addressing comprehensive and inclusive peace agreements, and understanding that we're in for the long haul. And I do think that one of the important lessons that Ireland has consistently um, in its, in its, in its um, run for the council, but also in, in the language that Ireland consistently uses to say, this is the model that works. We actually know with all of its limits that this is the model that works. And the other, this other, these other flirtations are really courting disaster, including in places like Yemen, where the failure to get that kind of inclusivity and everybody round the table and fundamentally address conditions conducive mm-hmm. is simply producing perpetual, cyclical conflict with misery and, and massive human rights violations around the world. Thank
0: you, Gustavo. I don't know if you're still there. Yeah, you are. Yeah. Are you familiar with the peace agreement in Northern Ireland? You probably, most certainly, are with the South
5: African one. Uh, uh, generally, but uh, but I do think that, and, and if I can add two cents to that, not so much with the with the Good Friday Agreement, but uh, uh, that certainly in no, our uh, research in the last couple of years, there's always been this question around how our own experience actually help in terms of the role that we play in the UN Security Council, and that can be the case of Ireland or of or of South Africa and I think to one extent it gives the moral ground and we shouldn't really overlook that because by talking about peace as a lived reality and talking about overcoming conflict as a lived reality matters it's not just a far away discussion that we're talking about something that we've experienced as an outside actor and I think to some example, because the Security Council is often desperate for those 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 ideas and having a country like South Africa, like Ireland or recently even Ivory Coast really kind of gives that new perspective into how can we understand peace as a complex process, but also something that is not perfect, that some of the best speeches that I've seen in the last couple of years have been of countries that have a knowledge that we have a problem internally. And these are the kinds of things that we need to do to address. South Africa was an interesting example last year when it came to women, peace and security, because we started calling South Africa as a global champion when it comes to advancing women, peace and security agenda. But we have major crises internally when it comes to sexual and gender based violence. And that wasn't out of the discussion. Africa didn't try to portray itself as a perfect country, actually, became part of the policies where our own national action plan on Resolution 1325 got delay of years because we had to incorporate a national element into that. So, I think the issue of bringing our own examples and also to showcase peace processes as not being the short term process. I think we still in the council still develop responses that are very much expecting that we're going to resolve everything in two three four years or that we see a peace agreement as an opportunity for disengagement as we see elections as the big milestone that we then don't have much to do But okay. showcasing issues like ireland south africa ivory coast liberia and so on Show that these are long-term processes yeah. and we need to change the way that we mandate our responses to be uh, uh reflective of that Thank, Thank
0: you, you Gustav, and again, good message. Patience, persistence. It's a long-term process. It's an unfinished business, and we do have to pass the baton. Um, all good messages uh, from today, Louise. I don't have time, um, unfortunately, to to bring you in. Probably a good message to finish on is about the network and how we've come together, north and south of Ireland. Um, Ireland has used the agreement, and indeed. Uh, has a UN1325 application in its National Action Plan and has extended into Northern Ireland. Now there's the question I would like to ask the UK. When was it going to use the insiders? And it didn't. Um, So I'm very pleased that this network is in place Um, and it shows the lessons that maybe Ireland can link up with the UK and explain how a National Action Plan can apply to your own domestic backyard. Um, which was the lessons that we're learning. So uh, let me finish by thanking uh, you, Ambassador Sonia, Hyland, um, to Finn, to Raja, to Louise, to Gustavo, to Siobhan. Um, I feel you're all part of my extended family after this. Um, it's been so useful to hear from all of you. Um, and can I also thank, in behind the scenes today, Catherine O'Rourke from the Ulster University Transitional Justice Institute, and from Katrina Dowd, who has been doing all of the work on this today, and indeed the lead up to it from Dublin City University. Um, so thank you to both of them. And a reminder that the webinar was organised by the Irish Peace and Conflict Network. And to learn more about the network or to join or to have information. Um, You just go to the webinar, which is up here now. Carl Balfe from Christian Aid and Margaret Nugent. And thank you to both of them. Um, So please link up. If you're registered for today, you can link in um, and you will be able to show this discussion to others, which I think is really important. So can I wish you peace and good health to each and every one of you? Thank you.
6: Thank you. Thank you.
2: Thank you very much.
5: Thank you so much.
2: Thank you, Monica Gurmil
5: Mahad. Thank you. <laughs>